today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, should people charged with impaired driving be named and shamed? Mayor Fred Eisenberger preaches unification of the community in his first address to the new council. And electric vehicles are the future, not just for Canada, but for everybody, says GM President. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. We are heading towards the holiday season, of course. Uh, we're probably already in it, I guess. But, you know, and you've got office parties, etc. So there's always an increase in ride programs. Well, uh, what has happened now is uh, at least one police force here in Ontario has decided that enough is enough. And uh, starting uh, now, York Regional Police uh, will be publishing online the names of everybody who have been charged with impaired driving. Uh, they, like a lot of other jurisdictions, have seen significant increases in uh, impaired driving over the last little while and feel this may be the only thing they can do right now to try to curtail the, the numbers that seem to keep rising. Uh, we all want to stop impaired driving. We all want to increase public safety on the roads especially. But is this going too far? Some people have already logged on to this and suggested, wait a second, wait a second, I thought you were innocent until proven guilty. Let's ask Ross McLean to jump in on this one. A crime specialist and security expert, of course, former Toronto police officer. His uh, webpage, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, always with some great links about uh, the things that we talk about on the program. Ross, thank you for jumping in today. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, good to talk with you on this one, Bill. It's a, it's a bit of a puzzler. It can go either way, I guess. Well, are you surprised by this? I mean, I know a lot of uh, police services have talked about doing something like this, but they seem to get cold feet at the last minute. York Region's jumping right in. Yeah, they're, they're jumping right in. They're, you know, their reasoning being, uh, I guess, they don't know what else to do. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, uh, I'm not necessarily in favor of this whole naming before someone is convicted. I think it goes down a road that's not consistent with, uh, with policing. From a technical standpoint, Ross, if, if you fail a breathalyzer, in other words, if it's deemed uh, on that roadside test, that you have exceeded the legal limits. Are, are you guilty automatically then, or do you still have to go to trial? Everything has to go to trial. Okay. Everything has to go to trial. You know, and part of the part of it here too is there's. I mean, you start to get a little inside baseball on this, but there's a variety of charges. There's over eighty milligrams, which is one charge, and then there's impaired driving, which is another charge. They both have completely different sets of of evidence, even though they complement each other. And uh, if a police charges you with impaired, but not with the over 80, then it becomes the officer's testimony and ability to prove that you were impaired. And the court has to weigh that. So that, that's the issue when it comes to it being published. Uh, quite often, quite often, there are times when people do not get convicted, even though they're charged. Well, and therein lies the problem. Uh, if they're going to publish these names uh, just because a charge was laid, what happens if, in fact, that eventuality starts to occur and they, and they are not convicted. Uh, does the police service public uh, publish an apology? Of course not. It ends up on the web and it ends up on the web forever uh, for everybody to deal with. But, you know, part, part, there's a few parts of this issue I think that need to be looked at. No, number one is name and shame. Is that part of what the criminal code and the law says is supposed to be the penalty for this? that the government police agencies are supposed to put in. They're supposed to name you and shame you. I, I don't believe that's part of any legislation. And the other, the other trick in this, uh, Bill, is the police, this is a police principle. It's even on the York Regional Police uh, Ethics and Standards website that they have that says they have to preserve the rights and freedoms of all individuals in accordance with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. 
They have to administer law in just, impartial, and reasonable manner to all individuals, regardless of race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, gender, age, mental, physical disability, or sexual orientation. So what that says there is you're not supposed to treat people differently based on the crime that they're accused of having committed. You, you, You roll in, you look at the stuff, the police are supposed to be impartial, laying a charge and letting the court decide. It's not the police's job to mete out the punishment. Well, as my wife was saying to me, who's a lawyer here in town, our listeners know that, she said this is oh. akin to this is akin to dragging people through the public square like they used to do back in the Middle Ages. And just, you know, guilty or not, uh, if you got arrested or charged with anything, bingo, you know, put in stocks in the public square, that sort of thing. Uh, where's due process? I guess that's the question a lot of people will, will be asking here. Well, it is. And, and what happens if the police decide there's other crimes that they think are okay or not okay? Do they do they name people in those crimes? Do they not name them over there? Uh, it's it's very tricky, and things happen. And you look at the other thing with the name and shame about impaired driving. I mean, obviously, the principle they're going after is people who are impaired operating vehicles. If you look at the impaired by drug that we have coming up now, the devices for measuring that are not... Uh, None of those are going to get any convictions in court for a long time because they can be shown to be not accurate. The the police officers are going to have to go in. Drug recognition officers are going to have to go in and say, well, I moved my finger, I watched their eyes, I measured their pupils. All of these different sort of subjective things that will lead the court to either decide that that's an acceptable testimony or it's not acceptable testimony to convict somebody. So it is convicting someone in a sense before they've had their trial. That's that's the real issue with this, I see. And and the terminology here is interesting. They say impaired driving. Obviously, alcohol is the first thing that comes to mind, but with the, the cannabis legislation, that's got to get lopped in there at the same time. And as you say, Ross, we're not sure about the technology yet with the, with the cannabis uh, uh, stuff that they're using on the roadside. I know that it's been tested and it seems to work okay in California, but there are still some lingering concerns that we've talked about on the program about cold weather and how that may impact the machinery. Absolutely. It's, it's been shown not to work uh, below a certain temperature. It's, it, it fails. But let's look at the impaired charges. Let's all of a sudden decide that a police force, a police chief, decides it's their policy that if you're, if you're given a ticket for doing anything against the Cannabis Act, they're going to publish it and put it on the Internet. Well, guess what happens when you go to the border to try and go into the States if someone searches your name? You know, now you haven't been convicted of it perhaps yet. Maybe you will be, maybe you won't be. It's just that it's imposing a penalty outside of the law that the police are taking an action to do that while we can all agree the end goal is good to help stop impaired driving, I've I've gone to some horrible impaired accidents uh, with people, uh, I don't think that this is the right way to go about it. What are we supposed to do? I understand the frustration. I think I think you've done an outstanding job of pointing out a lot of the shortfalls in, in what they're trying to do here, Ross. But at the same token, as you say, I've talked to officers that have been first on the scene at some of these horrific accidents too, uh, and and that's that's it's disgusting when you hear seeing some of the things that have gone on there. Uh, of course, the impact that it has on family. We know how devastating and, t- and terrible it is, and people die. People are maimed for life as a result of this, and the numbers are going up. I mean, I can understand the police being awfully frustrated. The, the public is frustrated by this. Yeah, and there's, um, you know, one of the biggest problems is recidivist people who are complete alcoholics who will drive at, you know, at just about any turn you can't stop them i can remember back in the day bill it was christmas eve we get a call to a 
a bad accident on the Bayview Extension, a long winding road that comes into downtown Toronto. And here's a car that just crossed the center line on Christmas Eve and hit a family uh, in their Volvo. Thank goodness there was a Volvo. Their family was okay. And, and here was a guy, totally blotto impaired, hanging out the car door. And as it turns out, as we investigated, he was at a bar drinking. His friends told him he shouldn't drive. So the friends took the keys off him. Uh, they went, he had another set of keys he had hidden on his car because he knew people would take the keys off him. He got in a fist fight with his friends who were trying to stop him from driving. He won the fight, drove off, and then hit this family on Christmas Eve. So you have some people that are recidivists. They're the worst. They're the ones who get you know involved in the accidents causing death. And then you get to the ones that are, uh, there's no, it's not a right way to say it. It's all politically incorrect. That are borderline. You can have somebody, for instance, who blows over on the roadside test. They go in for the breathalyzer, and they might blow a one and then a point eight when they go in. And sometimes the courts don't convict on those ones because they say the alcohol level was going down and it was on the edge. So there's there's all kinds of nuance in this that isn't really addressed by this policy. Well, and I know that when the York Regional Police were questioned about this and they said, well, you know, well, the name, I guess, you know, name and shame. Uh, and if people are embarrassed by that, then so be it. I get that. But by the same token, there can be other ramifications of having a name published like this before you've actually been convicted of something. You know, you, you talked about obviously what might happen at the border. Uh, what if your employer sees that and calls you in and say, Ross, uh, you and I better have a talk here. I'm not so sure I want people like you in this company. Uh, there can be family problems as a result of this. I mean, there's a whole long list of things that can happen. And then all of a sudden, like you say, if there is no conviction, you can't erase that. That's already there. And, and if there is a conviction, if there is, and you deserve the conviction, is that part of the penalty that it gets published? I mean, normally... People have to go, they do have to apply for certain jobs. You have to get a criminal record check and those sort of things. It's not, you know, publicly tattooed on your forehead, although many will argue it should be for this. And I and I can appreciate that because the accidents are terrible. And, you know, maybe York Region is in a particularly tough place because that's the region, as you know, just north of the city of Toronto. Mm -hmm. They've got so many commuters, so many people coming out of Toronto, and people have to drive a long way to get home these days. I mean, how many, how, I mean... Hamilton is pretty much a commuter city for Toronto for so many people. So you can imagine that if there's someone who's drinking, they're driving, they're going down those roads, and York Region has seen some horrendous uh, impaired driving accidents. Well, the maybe while. the most famous or infamous, I guess, was, was Marco Musso, who pled guilty, of course, to dangerous driving causing death. Uh, that was, what, 2015 when he smashed into that minivan that with, uh, and killed three children and uh, the grandparents, the grandfather, I guess. Uh, and he's in the news again, obviously, because of possible parole hearings. Uh, but, and, and that was a, an ongoing situation. And, and as we got some of the details about that and found out that he was, as you say, a repeat offender time and time again uh, and never did seem to get the message. And that's almost like the poster child, I guess, for you know the, the urgency to try to get something done about this. So once again, I say I, I understand totally the frustration. But I know that other police services have considered this and, and probably had second thoughts about it because of some of the things that you've raised here this morning and, and thinking this is not the way to go. Uh, I, I mean, you know, you, I guess the ideal situation here to stop this is I guess you need more ride programs. Public education doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, you know, in the Marco Muzzo one, that goes back to what I was saying. There was a guy who had absolutely no reason not to be driving. Like, he had no reason to be driving. Mm -hmm. Coming from a wealthy, he could have... He could have hired a fleet of cars to drive him home like a presidential limo, and it wouldn't have mattered to him. He could have done it. It was a decision that was made by someone who 
you know, obviously seem to have the re- repeat history for it. So those are the ones that are that are really, uh, really egregious. Yeah, and I don't. I wish I knew what the answer was to it, Bill. I just don't think that going down this road is it. I mean, police officers wouldn't like if every time they're charged under the police act or the SIU investigates that their name gets put out and put in the public before the SIU can either clear them or not, right? I mean, it's. Uh, I just think it's a dangerous road. I wish the police could find a way to stop it. Uh, I just don't think that this is going to do it for the recidivist people and those sorts. Well, we've got problems uh, with drivers. I mean, you know, with distracted driving is now the number one cause of, of death by vehicular uh, collisions. And, you know, this obviously is right up there with it. It's a, a close number two. Uh, and people are basically thumbing their nose at the law and simply saying, that doesn't apply to me. Don't worry about it. Or, hey, I can handle my liquor. Or, hey, I can talk on a cell phone and drive. What's the matter with you people? Uh, instead of simply saying it's the law, I guess we should obey it, there seems to be a significant uh, segment of the population right now that just figures that, you know what, that, that I'm above that. I don't need that. Well, you know, I've been doing a lot of highway driving the last month or so working with a client, and it's been a while since I've had to spend that much time back and forth on the 400 series of highways. And I have to tell you, Bill, I am, I am shocked by the lack of, of any sort of skilled driving by people. I mean, the, the speeds... The following too close, the changing lanes while being too close, sawing people off. And these are just normal people who you look at. You know they're going home to their family to try and pick up their kid at daycare or do something else. But they, people have got no idea until they're in an accident of how dangerous it is to be that way. And uh, I was talking to one truck driver. He says, and I agree with him, he says, you're not seeing marked police cars out on the 400 series of highways that much, pulling people over. You see ghost cars off to the side, but there seems to be not enough visible enforcement, and maybe the police need to be flying the flag a little bit more on some of these uh, roads and highways. It costs money, but I think we need deterrence to this uh, with the police being out there invisible. I mean, that's certainly something everybody, even me, if a police car rolls behind me and turns on its red lights, you know, your heart quickens a little bit. So. Sure. Well, that may be part of the solution, obviously, and then you're getting into staffing and cost, et cetera. But, I mean, well, you know, what's the cost of not doing it? I guess that's the other side of that coin. Ross, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. All right. And everybody, don't drink and drive this holiday season. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. Compliance is free, as they say, right? Thanks, Bill. Okay. Ross McLean, the crime specialist and security expert. Uh, And and that's the message. And and, and again, I don't know how this is going to roll out in York Region, how it's going to be received once they start publishing names. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some controversy about this. But the old adage is just don't do it in the first place. Uh, There are so many different things, whether it's taxi, Uber, friends, whatever the case might be, uh, make arrangements, especially when we head into the holiday season, because it's it's terrible to have to report these sorts of incidents and to see them time and time again. And uh, it is avoidable and preventable, and it's really up to each and every one of us to try to do our part for that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council got sworn in yesterday, and uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who of course was re-elected, uh, gave the keynote speech as the as want of the mayor, of course, when the new council finally starts. And uh, well, there was a familiar theme to it. If we build a recreation center in Glanbrook or a splash pad on the mountain, we do so knowing that the residents of other parts of Hamilton would never likely use them. But we support these projects on their merits because the local people deserve them. 
which was a kind of a backhanded way of getting into his LRT uh, discussions, uh, which also was a big theme uh, during the campaign and obviously will be, I'm sure, going forward. But uh, he also called for unity on this city council. Uh, there have been some up and down times with city councils over the last number of years, of course, and uh, more than a little bit of acrimony uh, oftentimes when the debate around things, well, like LRT, would start to heat up. So what are the chances I, I don't think of unanimity, but at least of having this, this council working together towards common goals. Let's bring John Best into the conversation. He, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. And uh, first of all, John, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. This is really the theme. I don't care who the mayor is or who's elected to city council. The first meeting is always uh, hand-holding and kumbaya. Uh, it doesn't usually last a whole long time. Well, in this case, uh, I can't remember. Uh, probably you have to go back to... Uh, the uh, Jack McDonald mayoralty, where where you have a council that's been returned, where where four at least four of the sitting members uh, openly oppose the, the the mayor in the the, the election just passed. So uh, unity is going to be difficult, I think, if it's going to be my way or the highway as far as LRT and other issues go. Well, let's talk about that and the dynamic. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, there were four people that actually endorsed uh, the, the main candidate, Beto Scrolls, as opposed to Fred Eisenberger. Uh, and, and I know that Mayor Eisenberger likes to talk about the mandate that he received from the, the greater population in the election, and the numbers are there. We, we get that. But uh, what about the mandate from the, the council itself? Uh, it's, uh, and now it's highly unusual, by the way, but for city councilors to endorse anybody, but for them to actually endorse the challenger in situations like that, uh, do you just wipe the page clean and just say, forget about that, that was then, this is now, or is there going to be some, some holdover animosity? Well, I, I don't know uh, whether, probably there will be, to be honest, Bill. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you've got four people that basically said they don't think you should be mayor anymore, uh, and they all represent uh, the anti-LRT uh, uh, vote. So, yeah, it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be a challenge. Uh, we did a, uh, an analysis of the vote, and, and, you know, there's no question the mayor won handily, won by 20-odd thousand votes. So there's no question about his mandate to be mayor. Uh, he was very reluctant to uh, suggest that it had anything to do with LRT until he saw the result. So, uh, you know, our, uh, when we take a look at some of the uh, ward-by-ward vote, we see uh, a majority of anti-LRT votes in something like eight wards. Now, whether that's going to influence those particular councillors, we've, we've got a couple of newcomers on the mountain. In both cases, their wards posted more anti-LRT votes when, when you, you know, add in the anti- and pro-LRT uh, candidates that, that were on the slate during there. So I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't, uh, this, this mayor has not shown himself to be a great healer of uh, divisions in the past. Um, even even in the speech last night, he uh, was predicting some kind of a recession. Uh, you know, which I I would you know I with some of these statements, I think you have to do a little bit of fact checking because uh, I'm I'm looking for this 2020 recession that was discussed uh, as being a reason why we got to get behind the uh, LRT and uh, RBC is showing 2020 uh, uh, modest increase in in GDP. Uh, Unemployment rate slightly lower than it is right now. Uh, the a construction uh, group did a forecast, and they're showing uh, construction employment uh, between 2018 and 2022 being up by 
almost 6%. Uh, TD shows a modest growth in uh, real GDP in 2020. So, you know, uh, I, maybe we're going to get her. I did see a recession predicted on Reddit, and uh, maybe that's where the information's coming from. But, you know, so to my mind, um, we, this is not a time to be fear-mongering. And, and the other point is that what's being proposed, uh, what's being offered by the provincial government is to replace LRT with other construction work. So you're replacing a billion dollars worth of construction with a billion dollars worth of construction. So it's hard to see why there, <laughs> that wouldn't also create jobs. Uh, that was a bit of a head-scratcher, i got to admit, uh, that, that element about a uh, possible recession, or probable recession, I guess. Uh, even if that were the case, John, is that the sort of thing you put into an inaugural speech? Well, it's re- reminiscent of what we went through last year, where, you, you know, it's almost we, we can't get the LRT uh, on its positive merits, so what we have to do is scare the hell out of people. In, in that case, uh, it was LRT or nothing, uh, and in this case, it's LRT uh, in order to inoculate ourselves against a recession. So, you know, to me, it, the, the whole thing uh, is uh, hogwash. So uh, among all the smiles and, and, and you know, a- a loving stuff that was going back and forth there yesterday, uh, as soon as they get down to brass tacks, and, and obviously LRT is going to dominate the discussion, I mean, there are other budgetary things to be sure, we understand that, but obviously the, the mayor is going to make this a, a main issue. I mean, he has to. This is what he, he, he says he wrote in on, and he feels he has the mandate to move this forward right now. We saw this in the last term, though, John, and, and when push came to shove, there was a lot of people pushing and, 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 and just say, no, we're not going to do this. And I don't know that those numbers have changed so much. I know there's some new faces there, but I still think they represent the same ideology. Um, well, we'll see. I, I think you're right that in some cases we replace pro-LRT um, counselors with pro-LT counselors. Uh, so we'll have to see how that works out. But here's the other thing. We're, we're heading into 2019. And 2019, as far as LRT is concerned, is the finish line. We're going to know how much the project's going to cost, and we're also going to know what the operating and maintenance cost is going to be. So why would council vote, do an affirmation vote, as it's being discussed? Why this quickie vote before we know those numbers, especially now that we're in the year where we're going to get the figures? Um, you know, we're hearing that uh, the actual cost of this project is at least 1.3 billion. So the real question for for council may well be: uh, Are you prepared to pony up 300 million dollars to make this thing happen, or uh, are you going to use the billion dollars that you've been promised uh, and and maybe find some other way of deploying it? What are you hearing from Queens Park? I mean, I understand what the premier has said and uh, what he said during the campaign, etc. That you can have the money either way. Uh, and I, some people are hanging their hat on that, but I'm still hearing some rumors from some of the people I know at Queen's Park, speaking off the record, of course, that uh, that he may offer a plan B uh, once uh, the budget, uh, the provincial budget, that is, is announced, and they start talking about what money is actually going to be allocated here. Uh, we were just talking with Councillor Partridge about the, the, the bypass out in Waterdown, uh, which obviously is was way behind, like about eight years behind schedule. Uh, to offer something like that and, and maybe a couple of mini-projects as opposed to this one, if this is not what they want to do. So that, that carrot for the anti-LRT crowd seems to be still there. It's absolutely still there. And um, I, I think, uh, again, Bill, I, I think this cost issue is, is the real 
elephant in the room. Um, uh, I don't think there's any hope that uh, council, that uh, the province will, will go beyond the $1 billion pledge. I think that's that's got a hard cap on it. So if, if it turns out that the cost of LRT, and I, I've talked to some people that are working on other uh, LRT projects, and they're saying the chances of that coming in at $1 billion are pretty slim. Um, uh, I've even heard that the, when the RFP went out for the, for the shortlisted consortiums, that the budget uh, at that time, which was sometime last year, was about 1.3. That was kind of the penciled-in figure that they, they thought it would be. And I don't see Hamilton ponying up uh, $300 million to make this a reality when the alternative is they can have a million dollars worth of uh, smaller construction projects that uh, that can be, uh, you know, can have benefit all around the city. I, so, I know I know, we're going down the road of speculation, but if that were to be the case, and if the cost has gone up, and, you know, the cost hardly ever goes down the longer this thing is delayed, but if it does go to 1.3, and, and the province says, no, we said a billion, that's it, uh, that tells me that a couple of the pro and or LRT votes are going to go offside on this because they said as long as no city council money is spent on this, and all of a sudden that's a new ball game. It would definitely change the uh, change the dynamic on it for sure. Um, but you know what? I, I'm I'm through predicting <laughs> where this council goes on on these issues. I, I think all you can do uh, is try to ascertain the facts as best as you can and make sure that that when council votes on this issue that they have all the facts and uh, we just uh, our, our december edition just came out and and one of the things we're talking about editorially is it's absolutely critical that this council satisfy itself that it knows everything it needs to know about the final cost of LRT before they do any affirmation votes and at the same time they need to thoroughly explore what they could get for the billion dollars outside of LRT and I think for that to happen, there needs to be a small committee of council that's composed uh, of, of people on both sides of the issue so we don't get any dueling versions of what, what was said at Queen's Park. Uh, I think the facts need to be laid out completely in terms of cost in front of this council, and at that point, that should be when they vote. And then if they've got the full facts in front of them, let them vote and let the chips fall where they may. Who takes the leadership role here on both sides? Obviously, I would think Mayor Eisenberger on the pro-LRT side, but uh, he ha he needs advocacy from some of his council colleagues, and there's certainly a camp of anti-LRT, but is, an, is it an organized camp on council? Well, I think they've talked to each other. I mean, they, they fully know uh, that having opposed, uh, uh, openly opposed uh, Mayor Eisenberger, that uh, they're probably going to be in for some kind of uh, payback. So uh, I think they, they are certainly talking to each other. Who's going to lead it? I can't say. Uh, I've been trying to find that out. But, um, and, and then we'll see who else is there uh, besides the four that openly uh, declared their opposition to uh, Fred Eisenberger's candidacy. We'll see who else uh, comes along. Um, but you know, predicting this council is uh, really a mugs game, Bill, as you know. With this, I think the right word to use here is obsession with LRT, and I mean that on both sides. It obviously is going to dominate at least the early part of this term of council. Uh, is there a chance of us missing the ball on a couple of other things that council should be looking at? I mean, this is a changing city. The economy is changing. There's a lot of things going on. There are other infrastructure needs beside that uh, that uh, don't seem to be much part of the conversation anymore. 
Well, absolutely. I, I mean, we're we're faced with a situation, uh, you know, with the Alfreda Growth District and and the uh, places to grow that um, has been, you know, sort of imposed on municipalities. Uh, we're looking at a, a population growth of somewhere just under a hundred million, hundred thousand people, and we got to find jobs for them. And, and, and in order to find jobs for them, we have to have job lands. So, to me, uh, the most productive use of infrastructure dollars right now would be the full development of the airport employment district. Uh, that includes servicing the land and and also you know improving access to it. I think that it would be uh, a major magnet for um, companies to take a look at Hamilton. We've already seen one uh, offer to uh, purchase um, a significant piece of property up there, and I think if it was fully up and running and open for business, that that would be uh, a major uh, catalyst for job growth. I think, and and I think the province, uh, looking at expenditures is very much focused on spending money where it will create the most jobs because that's really the issue as we head into the next four or five years. Uh, the economy has changed so much. Uh, we've got all these underemployed young people. Uh, they're overeducated and underemployed. We've got to find some way of, uh, of getting them involved uh, in the economy. Well, that was one of the uh, the feathers in, in uh, Mayor Diani's cap, I guess, back in those days. Uh, the deal he struck with the province to get the funding uh, for infrastructure for the Red Hill Business Park, and obviously it's paid off in a big way when we see the, the development that's occurred up there. Uh, so do you go cap in hand to Queen's Park and try to do that again? Well, not really cap in hand. They've told us that we can have a billion dollars and we can, and we can spend it on infrastructure. So it's really not cap in hand. It's, uh, it's deliver a list. And, and say, this is what we've agreed on. Can you help us out? Is there a fear? I know we're just about out of time. Is there a fear, though, that if, if that were to happen, and, and again, a lot of things have to move in certain ways for that billion dollars to be freed up and say, here, go and do what you want. Uh, do we basically get shut out of all the other infrastructure programs that may be coming along? That, in other words, we already have our share? Well, there, there is that possibility. I mean, I don't think the province is lying awake nights trying to figure out ways of screwing Hamilton, but... Uh, you know, if you got a billion dollars with no strings attached, and and that appears to be uh, uh, somewhat different than what other communities are getting, uh, but it seems to me that the, one of the issues here is uh, who's picking up the phone and calling our member Donna Skelly and having a who on council is dealing with her. It almost seems like the the, the play is to try to work around her, and I think that's just a brutal mistake and. Uh, I know I, I interviewed uh, uh, Councillor Clark, who was just sworn in yesterday, and he's been a, the sole MPP for Hamilton for his party, and he knows what it's like. And this idea of, of, of sort of cutting her out of the, uh, out of the equation is, is going to be a major blunder. So I think it's important to, to start reaching out to her, notwithstanding the personal animosity that the mayor and other members of council have shown towards her, um, you know, if their mayor, if their election is legit uh, and needs to be respected, and it does, then uh, the provincial election also needs to be respected, and uh, we we better get our sole member uh, seriously engaged in this issue. John Best at the Bay Observer. John, as always, thanks for this today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
GM Canada's president uh, is uh, finally on the record. Uh, they were, well, dodging a lot from a lot of media over the last little while. Uh, Travis Hester is this gentleman's name, uh, an Australian who's uh, been here just about eight months and says that, look, they're still committed. General Motors is still committed to Canada. You're just not going to build that car there. That's anymore. And, and nothing's going to happen in Oshawa after 2019, despite uh, the best intentions of uh, the Premier, the Prime Minister, and a whole bunch of other people, not to mention, of course, the union. So what's happening, and just where is this all going to go? So, uh, ask Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, great to have you with us today. Thanks. Glad to be here on a beautiful sunny day. It's a lovely day today, unless you're in Oshawa, of course, and wondering what your future is <laughs> going to be and uh, wondering what GM is going to be. Uh, they got to build these things someplace. Why not Canada? Well, I, I, I'm going to try to maybe parse what he said a little bit. Sure, what he's trying sure. to make clear is the fact that there is no vehicles that have been allocated. They have nothing to make in the plant come December, January 1st, 2020. I don't necessarily think I should read this, that it doesn't mean that we'll never build electric cars here. They just don't have a model ready to be built in an Oshawa at this time. So anyone who is trying to keep hopes alive that, uh, no, no, we'll find something to fill the void, you're not really going to be unemployed, you're not really going to need to look for a job, that you're really selling false hope. They have nothing ready to go in at that point. Now, they are going to invest money in their research and development facility. That's in Markham. They actually have 500 people there who work now, or who work there now, and they're going to add another nearly 500 people over the next year. Good-paying jobs, university-educated people. They don't build things, but they'll R&D and do that kind of work there. If they can find something there that needs to be built, maybe it will be built in Oshawa, but they haven't made that determination. But don't think of anything coming to Oshawa until... 2023, 24, 25, if ever, and I don't want to hold out false hope, maybe it'll never be there, but they just don't have anything ready. So this is kind of like a, a left-hand, right-hand thing. The left hand says, I'm empty, I don't have anything else I need to make, so I'm shutting down the plant. The other hand is saying, well, I'm working on it, I'm working on it, but until I have something ready, that is the prudent thing to do. So God bless Jerry Diaz and, and uh, Donald Trump and others who are demanding GM keep these plants open. They've got nothing to make there. Why? Because you and I aren't buying enough of the vehicles that are made at these factories. Well, let's talk about those numbers, and I believe the number that you mentioned to us is just over 1%, I think, of vehicle sales are electric cars. That's correct. Today, that's absolutely right. So why are they making such a huge investment, both uh, technologically and financially, into this? Uh, because you're not going to survive on 1%. No, you're not going to survive if that's where it is today. So, uh, Bill, let me just draw a parallel. Uh, many of your listeners are old enough that when they were young people, they had a record collection. They had all these vinyl LPs lying around the house. And then at some point in the 1980s was introduced CD technology, compact disc technology. And in a period of 18 months, we went from no CDs to only being really on CDs, and vinyl was passe. Now, again, I know there's a few people who say, wait a minute, I'm an audiophile. I still have those records around. But the vast majority of people have moved to something digital, and it happened just overnight what the car companies believe, and, and I can't prove it to you because that this is just them looking into their crystal ball, that there are two major problems with electric vehicles, why we don't buy more of them today. One is the distance you can drive on a charge, and that's running around 300, 350 kilometers. That would be a round trip from Hamilton to London, Ontario, and back. For most people, they go, hmm, that's not, that's not a long enough distance before refueling. I needed to go farther. So maybe 500 kilometers, 600 kilometers between charges. 
I think that's easily fixable and really will happen in the next year or two. The bigger challenge is refilling the car. So when my car hits empty today and I'm a gas-powered vehicle, I stop at a gas pump. Five minutes later, I'm on the road again with a full tank of gas ready to drive another, whatever it is, 600 kilometers. Uh, Today, charging takes a long time, sometimes as much as six hours, to recharge all those batteries in an electric vehicle. And that's a real sticking point. Again, GM and others think we can fix that. We think technology and batteries is evolving so fast that within just a year or two, these two major hurdles will go the way of the dodo bird. And because of other pressures like the green energy, climate change, trying to meet the Paris Accords, even though Doug Ford may not want to incent you to buy them, other governments are going to incent you to buy them, and that's going to be the way of the future. And they think it's going to be just like just like blinking an eye. In one year, it's 1%. The next year, it's 35%. That's what they think might happen. I don't think that's going to happen in 2019, but they're making this gamble looking more at 22, 2020, 2021, 2022. Is there going to be a, a bridge here? Uh, you know, we're going from combustion engines, uh, and and obviously the move General Motors is looking at here, and Ford, in a similar fashion, is, is yep. saying, oh, it's going to be electric. But hybrid seems to be the uh, the compromise situation here, and I don't hear them talking about that. Yeah, and so you raise a good question. Uh, what is your fear if you drive an electric vehicle? Well, I'm coming to the end of the charge, and oh, my God, I may not have quite enough electricity to get home. Well, if I've got a fuel reserve, and granted it won't be a big fuel reserve, but the engine could kick over and suddenly start... Uh, burning uh, burning gasoline, and that would get me back home. But uh, uh, and so I I get hybrids. The problem is they're a little bit of this and a little little bit of this, a uh, little bit of that, and they're not really anything specific. What am I trying to get at here? A fully electric vehicle, uh, the engine runs so differently, and the wear and tear on the engine is so different. In fact, where now we take a car in depending upon the model you own, every 5,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 kilometers for an inspection, oil change, what have you, electric vehicles don't need oil changes. They don't have antifreeze. Um, they, they don't break down in the same way. And so they think that when that technology is ripe, that it's not hybrids are just a little of this and a little of that. We won't do that. We'll actually jump when we're ready to full electric vehicles. Again, it's like uh, I didn't sell you a, a a record player that was a combination CD player and vinyl, you jumped whole hog into CDs and went from there. That's the gamble they're taking. And by the way, they may be completely wrong. So uh, GM, they're not saying that, but that is their gamble. If they read the market incorrectly and find out the world still wants gas-powered vehicles in 2021, 2022, this may be a mistake, and they can, again, reopen that plant if that's what the consumers demand. Well, I think there's an argument to be made that uh, that they did blow it a couple of years ago. You know, coming out of the recession, uh, it was pretty clear that they thought small cars were going to be what the market was going to do, and they, they yep. seem to gear all of their energies towards that, and we're buying trucks and SUVs. That's That's what's causing this problem. Right. Well, again, here's the problem when you try to predict the future. Tell me, tell me what the price of a barrel of oil is going to be a year from now. In just the last three years, I've seen oil as cheap as $35 a barrel. I've seen it as much as $150 a barrel. As recently as the start of November, it was over $70 a barrel. Today, it's struggling at $50 a barrel. So as a consumer, while I, I understand sustainability, I understand green energy, I understand carbon pollution, I understand all that, I very much vote what I have to pay at the pump. 
And you're absolutely right. Coming out of that recession, all the prognosticators looked at availability of oil and the price of oil and therefore the price of gasoline and said fuel efficiency is the way of the future. We've got to get more fuel efficient. Small vehicles, more fuel efficient. That's what the world's going to want. And then the price of oil falls, and it becomes dirt cheap. Even now, at 96 cents a liter, look how good this is compared to the summer. At one point in the summer, you're paying nearly a dollar fifteen a liter. Well, I don't, it's all over now. It's, I'll never see those prices again. We fool ourselves as consumers, and whatever we buy today reflects the prices today. So right now, with low prices, you're right. People want SUVs, uh, pickup trucks. Uh, uh, crossover vehicles that burn more fuel. Uh, I'll take the luxury over the austerity, thank you very much. But again, if I look at the long-term trends, we just don't think this is going to be that case for a long, long time. It will change at some point, and that's what GM is trying to position itself. It's a very, very tricky game, and I, uh, you know, I teach management for a living. When you have an industry that doesn't change very much, like banking, banking is banking, doesn't change very much, fairly easy to predict the future, but if I'm into a technology product, or in this case an automobile, and driven with these, what's going to happen? How fast is it going to happen? Uh, it takes four to five years to build the capability to do something. So I have to anticipate now where the market's going to go. And Bill, I'm sorry, I'll get a little off topic for a second, but this is actually one of the problems with the electrical distribution grid, what have you. Way back, more than a decade ago, in the mid-2000s, the provincial government tried to guess where we were going to go with electricity. They looked at the consumption in the early part of the 2000s, extrapolated that out for 20 years, and said, oh my God, we need more capacity. So they built the capacity. Guess what? Today, in 2018, we as a province use less electricity than we did in the year 2000 because we've gotten more efficient. Nobody saw that coming, and as such, we have a grid that's not sustainable today. All right, let's talk about the, the you mentioned the price of gasoline, and that's certainly a factor in this discussion, but so is the price of hydro, and we haven't even touched on that, and, and that's that's uh, a rather you know important element to this whole thing. We, we know right now that we have lower hydro rates, but we know that they're artificially low, and we don't know how long that's going to last. Uh, what does that do to this, this all rush to, to electric that may be happening? Right, and just to finish your comment, and we have a premier of Ontario who says he can take them even lower. He's going to find another 25% savings on electricity prices. So here's the problem, Bill. Uh, I tell you, I've got an electric vehicle out there. You know what it takes to fill your tank with gasoline. You know what it's going to cost, $50 or something like that, to fill your tank with gasoline. But you sitting here today have absolutely no idea how much energy is going to cost to fill your tank, if you will, on your electric vehicle. Is it $10 worth of electricity? Is it 20 Is it 30 And because it's unknown, you're better to go with the devil you know than the devil you don't. And I think one of the problems that GM and other people have with these electric vehicles is no one's telling us, what does it cost to fill my tank? We understand how, oh, yeah, you just plug in your car when you come home at night, and it's just like you plug in your, your laptop computer or you plug in your, your smartphone to recharge the battery. I get that. But what's it going to cost me? How's it going to impact my bill? It may very well be, Bill, that if I told you that every tank full of electricity you need is only 20 bucks, and right now you're paying 50 bucks for gasoline, you might be saying to me, Marvin, what am I doing? Even as expensive as electricity is, and I get it that it's expensive, you might say, well, if it's only $20, sign me up. Let me get that electric vehicle now. But you have no idea, and most people don't. I don't even know what that number is.
Well, and again, that comes down to usage, doesn't it? I mean, uh, you may think that may sound like a good deal, but if you have to recharge a thing two or three times a week, you're still in the same ballpark as you were with the gasoline. So it, it depends on the user, obviously, and, and where the, you know they're going with the vehicle. Listen, i got to ask you, though, because we, I wanted to touch briefly about this research plant that they've uh, invested in Markham, yep. and, and you talked about the fact that they've already got expansion uh, plans in mind. Uh, where were they with this technology and developing these technologies way back when? It just seems as if they're late to the game here. Yeah, that's another good question. Um, you, you, you're probably familiar with this company called Tesla that's introduced an electric vehicle. Heard of them, yeah. You've heard of them. And um, when, when they were talking about starting Tesla, most people thought Tesla was going to go the way of Bricklin or the DeLorean. It was a, a pet project of a billionaire more money than brains, uh, it'll be a hobby car, it'll be a little footnote car, uh, you know, the way, again, a DeLorean or a Bricklin is, and, and instead, the market has reacted to them in a much bigger way than anyone anticipated, and I think this is also fueling it. They're saying, oh, you know, people, there are people who seem to want to pay these kinds of prices. Remember, Tesla has three models. The entry-level Tesla's in the mid-30,000s. The higher ones get into the $60,000, $70,000 range. But there are people buying them. And, in fact, they have a back order. If I order a Tesla today, it won't be delivered until late 2019. So I think where they, they thought this was, they had more time. I think they felt they had 10, 20 years. The reality of Tesla in the market uh, on one hand, and then on the other side, these autonomous driving vehicles. Again, stuff of science fiction. Get in behind the wheel and say, car, drive me to work, or drive me home, or drive me to the metro store nearby. That's science fiction. Well, you know, today we have companies doing this, and the fear is they aren't the major car companies. They're Google. They are uh, Uber. They are uh, Microsoft, who've invested in this technology. And so if I'm GM, all of a sudden I'm seeing a lot of new players spending lots and lots and lots of money. And uh, maybe maybe I have waited too long to jump in. I'd better jump in whole hog. And I think some of what Mary Barra, who's the CEO of GM in the United States, has announced is very much trying to catch up. They waited long, but they still think they've got time to make up the ground. What's happening across the street? Uh, the McMaster Automotive Research Center, which I know has been cutting edge with a lot of these new technologies, uh, do they play a part in what's going on here? Absolutely, uh, and, but they do it in a couple of different ways. So on one hand, they work with the car companies themselves to solve problems, whatever that problem happens to be. How do I get a robot to weld this part, or how do I install this engine? But they'll also work with material handlers. So uh, we've talked a bit about this, that Stelco and DeFasco, big providers of steel, Will these electric vehicles still be using steel in the future? And the, the knock against steel is that while it's durable, it's heavy. And heavy isn't good for an electric vehicle. It puts too much, draws too much energy to run. So many people think the vehicle of the future will have lots of aluminum and lots of plastic, but very little steel. So that same automotive research center works with people like Stelco and DeFasco to come out with new kinds of steel, lightweight, flexible, easy to be used. And, and by the way, you do this now as the car companies are doing the research and development for these new vehicles to give them an alternative material that still is going to keep you in business, isn't going to innovate you out of business. So we work on both sides. They work with the materials providers. They also work with the car companies on this. Um, much of it is not initiated by McMaster. In other words, we have a pool of very intelligent people, and the car companies come themselves and say, can I use this pool? Can I hire these people? Here are some of the problems. It's not exactly like we're doing this totally autonomously and then trying to, to peddle what we research back to them. 
Well, the, the project that comes to mind, of course, is the one where they, 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 it's about five or six students, I guess, from the engineering, and they've got a, it's a Camaro, but it's a, I guess it's actually an electric Camaro, and uh, different technology altogether. It's an electric muscle car, but which sounds oxymoronic, but apparently you can do that now. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that they're working on, both in the lab, and in the case of the Camaro, they've taken it out of the lab and put it in the field and actually run them. Uh, and that becomes another important feature. Take those autonomous vehicles. If, if I tell you, Bill, buy an autonomous vehicle and it will drive 3,000 kilometers before you have an accident, you're not going to buy an autonomous vehicle. 3,000 kilometers, that's nothing. Now, if I told you in the field I've had a vehicle that's gone 300,000 kilometers without an accident, Okay, well, that's probably better than I average as an individual. We all make mistakes. We're human. If the computer can reduce the amount of error to something in a better tolerance, then why wouldn't I invest in it? So you have to just, you can't just research this in the lab and say, in theory, it should work like this. You need to have something out on the road, and then you can draw on that uh, practical experience as well. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, great ta- talking with you, shedding some light on this, Marvin. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.